0: The message of grace is a radical message. In fact, it's grace that makes Christianity entirely unique. To think of Christianity as merely just another of the world's religions is just categorically false. Grace is so unique and so radical that is... um, is completely unprecedented in terms of just mere religious experience. And so uh, this morning and next Sunday, we want to think about grace. And uh, admittedly, we'll not get to the bottom of grace in two weeks. In fact, as followers of Jesus, we'll spend the rest of our lives mining the richness of grace without ever even coming close to plumbing the depths And so as we get um, started uh, today, I want us to think about the relationship between grace and religion. And uh, full disclosure, I don't think there is a relationship between grace and religion. In fact, I think they're like this. I think religion opposes uh, grace. But I uh, I do understand that there are some Christians who use the word religion positively. And it could be just uh, semantics. We might simply be um, kind of assigning different meanings to the same term. But uh, for me, I think of the word religion uh, like a four-letter word. I don't wanna be religious. I don't wanna be thought of as religious. I don't want this uh, digital space, SCF Online, I don't want it to be religious space. I really don't want Sobel Church to be a religious place. Christianity is not a religion. In fact, if you think of it, religious people have always been the enemy of Jesus. Religion, um, technically speaking, religion by definition is any system of salvation, any system, any system of salvation and the systems, all systems, have built-in redundancies to keep them going over and over and over again. And so religion refers to any system of salvation. And so religion, as a system, has built-in redundancies. And so even when people use the word religion positively, to me, it's still a cringeworthy Term because of the inherent redundancy. I think that inherent redundancy flies in the face of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus on the cross was the final offering for sin, the final sacrifice of sin. What Jesus did on the cross ends religion, it ends the redundancy. Jesus died once for all. He said, It's finished, and it was. The word religion comes from the Latin word re legare, re meaning again, legare meaning to bind, to re to bind again and again and again. You can see the redundancy uh, inherent in the term itself. And so those who use the word um, religion positively, I suppose they think of it as a refastening to something good. But for those of us who use the term uh, negatively, we think of it as a return to bondage, and who wants that? I agree with Matthew Bolton in his book, God Against Religion, when he writes these words, religion, far from being the happy solution to the basic human crisis of separation from God, is rather the very occasion for that crisis in the first place. I agree with Greg Boyd in his book, The Myth of a Christian Religion, when he writes, religion doesn't save people. Religion, in fact, may be one of the greatest obstacles to being saved. To participate in the fullness of life that comes from God, we must revolt against the idolatrous life offered us from religion. And I agree with Andrew Farley in his book, God Without Religion, when he writes these words, Christians need no religion of any sort. Instead, we already have everything we need to experience an intimate relationship with Jesus. Maybe our only real trouble is that we just don't know what we have. You know, if you read the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, four Uh, biographies of the life of Jesus written in the first century by friends of Jesus. You read those four gospels and what you discover is that religious people, people of religious systems have always been the enemy of Jesus. In fact, it was religious people who put Jesus to death. Jesus said that he came to, to give us rest. What kind of rest did Jesus come to give us? Rest from what? Did he come to give us rest from sin? Well, no, um, he didn't come to give us rest from sin. He came to save us from sin, to forgive us and to cleanse us and to declare us righteous. He came to give us rest from religion. Here's what we read in Matthew uh, chapter 11. This is verses 28 to 30. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. What causes this weariness? What are, what are these heavy burdens that Jesus is referring to? Well, this is the weariness that comes from uh, leaders of, of uh, religious systems, the, the, re, the religiosity of Jesus' day placing heavy religious burdens on people's shoulders. So Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. I love the way Eugene Peterson Uh, paraphrases the words of Jesus in the message. And here it is. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's so good. I love that. Well, last week, we talked about Jesus Christ in you. That when you surrender your life to Jesus as Lord, Jesus cleans house, he moves in, gives you a new heart that is compatible with with him, Christ in you. Well, Christ in you is not a passive thing. Jesus in you, it's not like Jesus is some uh, religious ornament or religious artifact that just sits stationary on a shelf in your heart. No, it's, it's not a passive thing. Um, Jesus has purpose for you. Jesus has a direction that he wants to head with you. Jesus has ground that he wants to gain uh, with you. Jesus said, take my uh, yoke upon you. A yoke was a, a farming implement used to really, to accomplish forward progress. It would be put on um, uh, oxen, for instance, and um, so it would kind of help push them forward to accomplish progress. Jesus said, take my, my yoke upon you. Notice he didn't say my, you know, take my hammock upon you or take my lazy boy recliner Uh, upon you. That's not the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. This is not nap time with Jesus. This is not passivity. The kind of rest that Jesus is talking about is purposeful rest. It's creative rest. It's active rest. It's productive rest. It's exciting rest because it is exciting to be partnered, teamed, yoked with Jesus moving forward. So Jesus is talking about rest from religion. And you know, when Jesus would speak about the religious leaders of his day, he would speak about them as ones who placed yokes on the people, burdens on the people, um, loads that were too heavy to bear. In fact, Jesus spoke these words about the religious leaders of his day. He said, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. That's in Matthew 23. Religion is absolutely done away with through Jesus. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has entirely done away with, ended the redundancy of religion. You know, the more I think about grace, the more I read about it, the more I learn about it, the more I just see it as something so incredibly radical. Well, in this series, we're exploring things that are untakeable, things that are unlosable, unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable truths, truths that can steady and anchor us even when things around us are changing or are uncertain, And so we've identified four things that we want to touch on in this series, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, our identity in Christ, and the love of God. So the last couple of weeks, we've looked at uh, the forgiveness of God, the biblical message of forgiveness, the once for all forgiveness of God in Christ, the, the total forgiveness of God, the fact that God has forgiven you in Christ totally past, present, and future. And we asked the question over the last couple of weeks, is that a risky message? Is it a dangerous message to tell people? Is it dangerous to go all in on this message of forgiveness? Could it possibly cause people to, to sin more? You see, if people are, um, you know, if, if, if they're taught that they're forgiveness is taken care of. Even their future forgiveness, what's to stop them from taking advantage of that and just going out and, and sinning more? Is there a danger of that? Well, what we saw in the scriptures over the last couple of weeks is that the forgiveness of God, rather than propelling us to sin more, actually propels us to love God more and to love people more. And the message of God's total forgiveness propels us not to display ungodliness, but it propels us to display godly characteristics. And the message of God's forgiveness propels us to forgive uh, people more. So, you know, to go all in on the message of forgiveness is, not, is, is certainly not dangerous or risky for us. It is for the enemy. You know, friends, the enemy does not want you to understand your forgiveness. The enemy wants you to focus on your sin, not on your savior. The enemy wants you focused on the size of your failures, not the size of your forgiveness. The enemy wants you uh, stuck in yesterday as opposed to living in today. And so what we're going to do today as we think about grace. We're going to ask... some of the same questions of grace that we asked of forgiveness. Is it it risky? Is it a dangerous message to share? If we go all in on this message of grace, is it gonna lead to some kind of a free-for-all? Is it safe to teach people that um, we are totally accepted by God with no rule-based system to somehow keep us in line? Is that a safe uh, message to proclaim? And so as we go to the scriptures uh, today and next Sunday, and as we consider this uh, radical and unique message of grace, I think what we'll find from the scriptures is that uh, you know, the message of grace, rather than propelling us to ungodliness, actually propels us to godly living. Godly living propelled not by rules, godly living propelled not by religion, but godly living propelled by grace, by Jesus. Well, let's begin looking at some scriptures. Uh, We'll look at just some kind of grace 101 uh, scriptures that will help us to see that in Jesus, we are living under God's grace. So this is Galatians 5.18. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. So, are you directed by the Spirit? We talked about Christ in you. Christ in you, and that that is not a passive thing. He is directing you. He is leading you. The spirit of Jesus in you is directing you and leading you. And yet he is leading you in this environment called grace. So grace, rather than being just some free for all where anything goes, it is the environment in which the spirit of Christ who is in you is leading and directing So you are not under law, you are under grace directed by the spirit of Jesus in you. Here's another verse. This is Galatians 2.19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Are you alive to God? See, when you became a Christian, when you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, said yes to a personal relationship with Jesus, you went from being alive to sin, to being alive to God. You went from being dead to God to being uh, dead to sin. You were dead to God and alive to sin, and now you're dead to sin and alive to God. When you became a Christian, something miraculous happened inside of you. Uh, Paul says it this way, you died to the law. So you, Christian, you have no spiritual connection whatsoever to any rule-based religion. You may think that rules are the way, but Paul says you've died to the law. You have no connection to any rule-based religion, including the Old Covenant. You know, in the Old Covenant, there are 613 laws or rules, and you in Christ you have a spiritual connection to exactly zero of them, including the big 10. This, um, let let me say this, and this, um, this is kind of a radical thing and religion will push back on this, but grace increases. Grace increases. Grace increases as sin increases. Now, you might be thinking, does the Bible really say that? Because I thought that, you know, you could sin enough that God's grace would run out on you. I thought you could sin enough that God would just get sick and tired of you and say, no more grace for you. Well, here's what um, Paul says in the book of Romans. This is Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And the implication in that question is this. If you continue in sin, there's going to be more sin. But with more sin, what happens to grace? Does grace decrease or does grace increase? Well, grace increases. And so the question here is, well, then should we just keep on sinning so that there can be more grace? And Paul answers a little, you know, a little bit farther down in this passage. He says, No, a thousand times no, may it never be. But notice that God's grace does not run out on you. It doesn't. You cannot out sin the grace of God. You cannot compete against the grace of God and win. Well, here's another verse. This is Romans uh, 5. 20, this is the first part of that verse. The law came in, Paul says, so that the offense would increase. isn't that interesting? Paul says here, the purpose of the law was so that sin would increase, so that Paul and others would, would see their sin and be confronted by it and go, man, oh man, I've got a big problem. You know, many people today think we need law to decrease sin. But what Paul helps us to see is that under law sin actually increases. It seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Well, the the rest of this verse, the law came in so that the offense would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. You can see why some Christians and some pastors are really nervous about this message of grace and see it as something risky and dangerous. And you know what? It, it would be a risky, dangerous message that would just lead to chaos and just like the Wild West of sinning were it not for the fact that you, Christian, are a partaker of the divine nature. We talked about that last week. Jesus Christ is in you. When you said yes to Jesus, he cleaned house, moved in, gave you a new heart that is compatible with him. Christ lives in you. You're a partaker of the divine nature, and Jesus changes your desires. He changes from within what you really want. That is why grace works. Were it not for the fact that you're a partaker of the divine nature, were it not for the fact that Christ is in you, were it not for the fact that Jesus Christ changes what you desire, grace would be chaotic and frightening. And so we ask again, is grace a, is it a dangerous, risky message? Well, not for us but it is for the enemy. You know, the enemy does not want you to understand the grace of God. Well, we want to make a couple of uh, points, uh, quick points today, and then we'll make a couple more next week about grace. Point number one is this, God's grace propels godly living. God's grace propels godly living. So what we want to do just for a moment is take a very brief stroll through Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can open it up there. Uh, We'll have the verses here on the screen. We'll jump in here at verses 11 and 12. And here's what we find. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say, no, it, the grace of God, Teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As you look at uh, those two verses, do, do you get the idea that Paul is really nervous about grace? Do you get any sense that he's like, uh, grace is great, but uh, we need some checks and balances to make sure that it just doesn't go off the rails. We need, you know, let's, let's balance grace with some rules and some law. No, we don't see that at all. In fact, what we see Paul uh, saying is go all in. Go all in on grace. Just free fall into grace. It's trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. You know, it's interesting. The grace of God doesn't just save people. It does. It does. We're saved by grace. We all check that box on the theology quiz, right? Um, yep. Saved by grace. Absolutely. Can't do it by Works uh, saved by grace. Well, what are you doing now? Well, I'm, you know, I'm just doing my best to live out the Ten Commandments, just following those laws. God's helping me fill those laws. Well, I thought you said it was by grace, right? And we sometimes can get into this weird juggling act, this weird mix and match of grace and rules of of New Covenant and Old Covenant. Paul helps us see that the grace of God doesn't just save us. It does. By grace are you saved through faith, but grace also teaches us, teaches us to say no to sin, instructs us to deny sin and to live godly lives in this present age. We use that word godly quite a bit in church world. It's a great word. You know, he's such a godly person, she's such a godly woman, I want to be a godly person. Uh, But you notice the word godly has God in it. You can't be godly apart from God. You can't be godly by rules. Godly living happens when God is released to do what God does, and God refuses to do it by law. And so Paul is saying, no compromise here. No compromise. Go all in on grace. Uh, The next couple of verses in Titus 2, this is verses 13 and 14. While we wait for the blessed hope, well, what's that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do What is good, eager to do what is good. That's why grace works, because you, Christian, are eager to do what is good. The New American Standard uh, says you are zealous for good deeds. You, Christian, are zealous for good deeds. You are eager to do what is good. Now, my guess is that some of you this morning are eager to do what is good. You are zealous to do good deeds. It's just that you don't know it. Maybe nobody's told you before. Paul, um, Paul actually says that you are a slave to righteousness. Let, let's just pop into this Romans 6 passage. We looked at it very briefly last week. And Paul here in Romans 6 talking about people who are in Christ and in whom Christ lives. And he says, but thanks be to God that though you, who are now in Christ, you used to be slaves to sin. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That is why grace works, because you, Christian, are a slave to righteousness. You are eager to do what is good. You are zealous for good works. You are a partaker of the divine nature. Jesus Christ lives in you. You are chosen of God, holy and beloved, as we talked about last week. So back to the uh, Titus 2 passage, you are eager to do what is good. I think there are Christians who... um, who still think they want to sin. They've bought into the idea, you know, God is good and I'm bad. God is holy and I'm dirty. God is great and I stink and, um, you know, God is awesome and man, I gotta do better. I gotta try harder. God is, is, uh, God is, is holy and I'm dirty. That is not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is that he has made you holy. The gospel is that he has made you clean. He has changed what you want. You're a slave to righteousness now. You're eager to do what is good now. You're zealous for good deeds now. In fact, look at this. um, Purifies for himself. To purify for himself who? You. He's purified you for himself, a people that are his very own. He's made you long for a new way of living. And you know what? You can't get away from that. We talked last week about, you know, your next door neighbor or maybe somebody in your neighborhood. Uh, They don't know Jesus. They're not a partaker of the divine nature. Never met a sin they didn't like. Right? They can lie awake in bed all night long, just dreaming up new ways to sin. But that doesn't work for you anymore. And maybe, Christian, maybe you tried keeping on in a sin lifestyle, and what you discovered is that it doesn't work for you. There's no contentment in that for you. You sin and you're just filled with regret. And why did I do that? That doesn't fit. That's not who I am. That doesn't feel right. And you end up just kicking yourself in the rear end because there's no contentment. There's no satisfaction in it. Why? Because you're different. You're a partaker of the divine nature. Christ lives in you. And there's no getting away from that. You're a slave of righteousness. You're eager to do what's good. You're zealous for good deeds. You have this awareness inside of you now that you are not who you used to be. And uh, let's go to the next verse, uh, verse 15. I love this. Paul says, these then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And you know, I love the fact that Paul is so convinced about this. He's so convinced about the way of grace. Go all in. And he's not just convinced about the way of grace for himself. It's not like, hey, this is really working for me. No, he's saying this is the way. There is no other way. It's the way of grace. Anything else is garbage. Don't let anybody disregard you. Don't let anybody despise you in this. This is the truth that sets people free. Don't compromise in this. Don't try and strike some balance between grace and and rules. Don't buy into anything less than grace. It's Jesus plus nothing. Well, point number one again, God's grace propels godly living. And the second point we'll make is that God's grace propels us to strength. Um, I wanna take just a minute here and go through just a few verses in Hebrews chapter 13 so you can flip over to uh, Hebrews 13. By the way, if you read Hebrews 13, you might get to the end of it and find that you have goosebumps. It is an amazing chapter of God's word. So let's jump in. Uh, this is, um, we're jumping in at verses seven. Uh, this is verses seven and eight here of Hebrews 13. The author writes, remember those who led you well, why do we have to remember them? Because they're dead, Uh, most likely martyred for their faith. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith, their faith in Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice it doesn't say imitate their conduct. It says imitate their faith. You're not a you're not a clone of anybody. Don't imitate people's conduct. doesn't say imitate their conduct, says imitate their faith, imitate their dependency on Jesus. And you know, I wanna acknowledge that today is Mother's Day. And um, I wanna I want acknowledge great women of faith, women whose faith is worthy to be imitated by all of us. And you know, Some of the best moms I know and some of the best grandmas I know are not biological moms or biological grandmas. Certainly there's lots of wonderful biological moms and grandmas, but there's also lots of wonderful women of faith who are godly spiritual moms and spiritual grandmas. You know, I don't think I don't think Sobel Church would be operational today were it not for great women of faith. So I want to acknowledge you today, uh, biological moms and grandmas, spiritual moms and grandmas. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your faith that is worthy of imitation. We celebrate you today. We thank God for you today. We honor you today. We long to imitate your faith. Thank you uh, for living lives that uh, honor the Lord Jesus, for living lives with faith dependency on Christ that is worthy to be imitated. Let's uh, look at the next verse, verse nine. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. (laughs) You see, Your new heart that we've talked about is strengthened by grace. The grace of God is a perfect fit for your new heart. It strengthens your heart, strengthened by grace, not by foods, not by foods. He's talking about temple foods here and Jewish practices through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. And um, here comes the best part. This This is verse 10. The author says, we have an altar. We who are uh, participants in the new covenant, we who are followers of Jesus, the author says, we have an altar. Figuratively speaking, this is not a literal altar. This is a figurative altar from which those uh, law-based people who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. And so um, these animals, the blood of which is brought into the holy of holies, well, the carcasses of those animals were burned outside the camp, outside the camp the wall of religion, outside of Judaism, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the system of religion, they would go out, they would discard these carcasses, and they would build a big bonfire, and they would burn up all of the carcasses of these slain bulls and goats, and that place would literally stink, it was filthy, it was disgusting, Look at verse 13. So let us go out to Him, to that place, to that stinky, dirty, gross place, to that place that religion does not understand. Go out to that place where Christ has been discarded. Outside of religion, outside of rules, go to Him. Outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city. Here like Jerusalem, no. But we are seeking the city which is to come. Friends, it's okay to be rejected. It's okay to be misunderstood by the religious. But hold your ground, Maintain your trust in the finished work of Jesus. The way of grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing. We're going to leave it there for today. We'll pick it back up uh, next week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Amazing grace. Thank you that we can live in your grace, that your grace is the air we breathe, the atmosphere that we live in. Thank you that your grace is trustworthy, that you, Lord Jesus, are trustworthy. Thank you, Jesus, for our new heart, that you live in us and you animate and motivate and lead us from within, in real time, You, Jesus, the embodiment of grace living in us. Thank you that your grace propels us, not to sin, but to display godly qualities. It propels us not to weakness, but to strength. Thank you that your grace strengthens our new heart. And so today, may we go outside the camp to that place where Jesus was discarded, where he died on the cross, outside the city wall, outside of religion, bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt so that we can be enveloped in his grace. And may we in these days of change and uncertainty, may we be held firm by your unshakable, unbreakable, untakeable, steadying, anchoring, radical, amazing grace. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.